0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, your host today, and it's my great pleasure to be joined by two exceptional historians. With me are James Morton Turner, Associate Professor of Environmental Studies at Wellesley College, and Andrew Eisenberg, Hall Distinguished Professor of American History at the University of Kansas. Together, they are the authors of The Republican Reversal, Conservatives and the Environment from Nixon to Trump, published just a few days ago by Harvard University Press. Dr. Turner, Dr. Eisenberg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Oh, this is a marvelous piece of work. It's, it's clearly written, persuasively argued, and very well situated for classrooms next spring or, or holiday shopping next month for all you out there. Um, this uh, The book draws, and it really draws on on the rich flurry of, of recent scholarship on the history of the GOP and the rise of the right, which is kind of one of the richest veins of recent scholarship in history. Um, So I wonder, what are some of the ways that the Republican Party has changed in the last 50 years that best helps to explain what you're calling its reversal on environmental politics?
2: Well, the short answer to that, Brian, is about the dwindling of the moderate tradition within the Republican Party, which began in the 1960s and the rise of conservatism. And really, one of the things we were trying to do in the book was to draw in exactly what you referred to, that that scholarship on the rise of conservative Republicanism, and bring that into the study of recent environmental politics, which is not something that has happened in an extensive way. So what are some of the ways that the Republican Party changed that rise of conservatism? There was pretty clearly a geographical shift in the party. It... it started to elect more of its officials from the South and the West. And I think we focus on the West in the book because of the way in which conservative Republicans coming out of the West were challenging federal land management policies. Um, There's a complicated role of the evangelical right. For the rise of Ronald Reagan, the moral majority in the late 1970s was really important. The evangelical right though, didn't initially take much of a stand on environmental politics. They had other things on their agenda. But in a way, what kind of intrigues me about the the rise of conservatism and the way that played out in environmental politics is that moderate Republicans had supported environmental laws in the 1960s and the early 1970s. And even some conservative Republicans had supported environmental laws Barry Goldwater did. Uh, He was one of the co-sponsors of the Clean Air Act. And Ronald Reagan had a pretty decent record in environmental terms when he was governor of California. But I think that these Republicans had always been opposed to a lot of the government regulation from the New Deal and the Great Society. They couldn't figure out a way or didn't necessarily want to oppose environmental regulations. They saw that as being in a different category. And that started to fall apart in the 1970s, particularly with the oil crisis. I think Reagan saw an opportunity there to add environmental regulations to the kinds of ways that he'd been excoriating other kinds of economic regulations for a long time. And there's actually
0: two, there's two documents that you bring in early in the book that I think kind of jump off the page and grab readers and point toward sort of what were divergent futures for the GOP. And one I'm thinking of is the 1972 Republican Party platform and the other is what you call the Powell memo or what people call the Powell memo. Um could you tell our listeners a bit about each one of those and how they fit into the larger story?
1: Sure Brian this is Jay I'll take this question. Um I mean you, you can go back and you can look at these laws that were passed the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act and see you know just how strong the bipartisan support was see how many Members, you know, overwhelming uh, majorities from both parties, right, who are voting for these laws. But then, I think one of the things that surprised me was to actually go and look at the 1972 Republican Party's platform and, you know, single out those sections that were about the environment. And you know, what I didn't expect to see was that the Republican Party was, you know, seeing it as so important to respond to environmental issues that they were really positioning themselves as ahead of the Democrats on the issue. And this was an issue that they wanted to claim at that time. It seemed, it seemed that um, urgent. So, you know, you, you read through it and there are lines in there about kind of the sweeping environmental message that the Nixon administration has been sending to Congress in the early 1970s, that they're you know, concerned about air quality and water quality and toxic, toxic, waste substances and ocean dumping, right? This long list. And, you know, their point is Nixon's been sending these issues to Congress and Congress, the democratic Congress hasn't been active, right? That they've been languishing in the opposition Congress. You know, that's some of the language from, from the, uh, platform. You know, so that's you know a surprisingly strong statement about the Republicans' commitment to environmental reform. But you put that in um contrast with the Powell memo. So the Powell memo, very different document. <laughs> um, soon to be Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell drafted um drafted this document and the early 1970s, and it really you know, reflected this tension in the Republican Party, where on the one hand, certain Republicans, moderate Republicans were concerned about regulation and environmental issues, but then this other branch, the emerging conservative wing of the Republican Party, you know, saw in this whole host of regulations you know, everything from occupational regulations the fiscal regulations to consumer regulations to new environmental regulations, a real threat to the free enterprise market. And they, they saw the mobilization from the nineteen sixties, um, interest group mobilization, grassroots organization. And the Powell memo really kind of put it to the business community that the business community needed to step forward to engage in the policy process to advocate for itself to Defend, defend its interests in ways that it had not done in the 1960s. Um, and it really you know, it warned that you know, if this didn't happen, kind of politicians were gonna stampede you know, to support all of these new regulatory um, policies that were being put into place. So if the free market was gonna survive, um, the American business community needed to really vigorously uh, you know, work to preserve that free enterprise system. And so that's the beginning of the mobilization of conservative Republicans, or it's one of the beginnings of the mobilization of conservative Republicans industry, the conservative think tanks that they ally themselves with, they help create, they help support that um, you know, leads to this kind of collision of this environmental push of the 1970s and the um, conservative Republicans, you, kind know, of how they collide at the start of the Reagan administration.
0: And, and again, Reagan is this, is this pivotal figure in your book, is, of course, and uh, especially in its chapters on, on public lands that you mentioned and, and air and water and public health. Um, and you write that it was Reagan, you know, bringing these bringing these Western politics to D.C., uh, which <laughs> gloomily at one point you you observe that you know, sort of that this sort of has become the norm now. We all live in the West now. But um, that Reagan brings these politics east and, and then, quote, broke with the nation's help. You know, the Reagan administration broke with the nation's bipartisan commitment to environmental protection and ushered in the beginnings of the Republican reversal. How
2: did he do that? Well, he wasn't acting alone. This is Drew, by the way. Uh, he, he wasn't acting alone. Um, he kind of rode in on a wave of anti-federal feeling that was bubbling up in the West that, that has been called the Sagebrush Rebellion. There were a number of state legislatures in the West that were upset about some new regulations about the management of public lands that had gone through in the middle of the 1970s and i think nevada was the first state to have its state legislature uh, pass a resolution taking back all the federal land within its state boundaries which is of course legally completely moot there there's it has no effect at all but other state legislatures in the west followed along and uh, reagan perceived that this was a kind of winning issue. It, it, it clearly was sort of symbolic politics. It was a way to beat up on Washington without really having to take any consequences for what you were saying. And so at some point in his the run-up to his 1980 campaign, he he said, count me in as a sagebrush rebel. So he was kind of being swept in in that respect. But I think that one of the other things he did was that he... He intuited that he could critique environmental regulations in the same way that he'd been critiquing other kinds of economic regulations. And he could kind of add that to one of the things that he was criticizing about the Democratic legacy stretching back to the New Deal and the Great Society. For a long time, in his stump speech when he was traveling around for General Electric and when he was supporting Goldwater, the term he had used in his stump speech was that he didn't want Americans to let what he called a little intellectual elite, that was his term, in a far distant capital, tell you how to run your lives. They think they they know better how to run your life than you do. And he, he added environmental regulations into this in his run for the presidency in 1980. And so I think that's so, it both came from his conservative ideology and it came in the moment in this sort of Western response to, to federal regulation. So, when he got into office, you know, in a big sense, there are two kinds of things that he tried to do. It's, it's more complicated than that, but we'll just talk about those two things. One was to ramp up the production of fossil fuels on federal lands and his. The person who put that program into effect for him was his Secretary of the Interior, James Watt, who opened up uh, uh, leasing for coal and oil and natural gas on federal lands and also oil drilling offshore. That there had been a kind of bipartisan consensus for a long time, particularly on offshore oil drilling to keep that relatively limited. That was a, a kind of consensus that had emerged after the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill. And James Watt just kind of shoved through that and said, we're going to open this up and we're going to do this on a much larger scale than has been done before. And I'll just say as an aside, that that became the new bipartisan consensus. And that level of oil production and fossil fuel production on federal lands and offshore holdings continued for the next 30 or 40 years until halfway through the Obama administration. And the other thing he tried to do was to roll back regulations having to do with clean air and clean water. And he certainly didn't want to address something like acid rain. This is a tricky thing because it's kind of like the dog that didn't bark. But acid rain was an extraordinary challenge in the 1980s. And and the Reagan administration dragged its heels about doing anything about that. He did do something toward the end of his second term, uh, reach an international agreement about uh, uh, ozone, uh, the ozone hole, but for the most part, he, he the uh, the second thing he tried to do was to sort of not overregulate industry and these kinds of um, uh, effects on air and on water. I think he had relatively speaking less success at that than in ramping up fossil fuel production. Part of the reason was that the person he put in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, Ann Gorsuch had to leave after a couple of years because of various problems she had, both ethically and in terms of management. Um, But I think the other reason for that is that Americans, although they may have wanted cheaper fossil fuels, they also wanted clean air and clean water, and they were more concerned about these kinds of uh, pollution problems.
0: It's commonplace when sketching out the history of environmental politics to, you know, you call 1970s, you have Earth Day, then you call 1970s, the environmental decade, and you rattle off the Many legislative achievements from you know, NEPA up to Superfund. Um, but And you begin the book, though, importantly, with a reminder that the passage of a law is never the end of the story. And just as important, you write, is how a law is implemented and litigated and defended. And so you run into the 80s and, and, and you see what the Reagan administration is doing. Um, although I'll say, though, in these chapters, I, I, I was really struck by, and you know, I, I understood the Reagan administration's you know, position and, and attempts here to, to roll, roll a lot of that back. But I, I was really struck by how much worse it could have been. Um, you know, in those middle chapters, you you show the many ways that they attempted to take the teeth out of these 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 laws, um, but that you know they kept running into obstacles and challenges. And so, could you can you say a bit about what some of those what kind of kept them from doing more of what they wanted to do?
1: Yeah, uh, this is Jay, and you know, I think I mean this. Your question gets at a much larger um, issue, and you know, one of the there's a chart in the very beginning of our book, which is drawn from the League of Conservation. Voters and the League of Conservation Voters has been kind of grading politicians on their environmental voting record since the since, uh, early 1970s. And if you look at this chart, um, it won't surprise most listeners to to this podcast that you see this dramatic divergence right between Democrats and Republicans from the 1970s up to today, where you know they were really quite close to one another back in the early 1970s, and now. Democrats tend to vote 90% or greater, going to get a good score from the league, and um, Republicans tend to be 5 or 10%. And I think, you know, looking, you know, my students, if they look at that graph, they often assume, well, you know, this divergence means that nothing's happening in Congress, that, you know, it's a state of gridlock in terms of environmental policy and politics. And, you know, when we say that, you know, passing the law, you know, that's not the end of the story. And it's because there are so many different ways in which environmental policy can be made and unmade. And kind of been focusing on this in our book, where one of our um, inspirations was a really great book that was published right eight or nine years ago now by Chris Kleiza and David Sousa on American environmental policy beyond gridlock, where they point out that in this moment of gridlock that we've kind of seen set in on environmental politics over the last 25 years that's really energized a whole bunch of different pathways by which policy um, work gets done. So some of that's through the executive branch, some of it's through um, the courts, some of it's pushing it back down to the, the state level. But I think the Reagan administration is kind of an early, uh, kind of kind of makes clear just how important these processes are going to be. Because when Reagan brought in Ann Gorsuch, you know, she was charged with really reworking the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And in some ways, this made sense in the early 1980s. You know, we had, as a country, 10 years of experience implementing these laws. And both kind of everyone agreed there were opportunities to reform them, to make them more efficient and um, more predictable in terms of how they were being implemented. But Reagan, instead of trying to reform the laws, really, you know, from the perspective of, of environmentalists, really tried to gut the laws, tried to um, get rid of federal standards, at the at uh, national standards, and push it back down to the state level, really raise up the role of cost-benefit analysis and put costs um, at the center of the decision-making process. And these initiatives that the Reagan administration made in terms of these uh, core environmental laws, you know, they ran up against, you know, a lot of political opposition that was rooted in Democrats who were strongly in favor of these laws, but also the moderate Republicans who had helped put the laws into place, many of them in the early 1970s. Um, So so one of the examples was the Clean Water Act. Uh, They tried to shift responsibility for standard setting, what is considered clean, um, back down to the state level, let let the states um, decide on that, not let the EPA did it. And when they you know advanced this proposal, you know, people like John Chafee from Rhode Island um, you know, were kind of right there. You know, uh, Senator Stafford from Vermont, you know, made clear that they didn't see any room for renegotiating the goals of the Clean Water Act. And as Republicans, you know, they were the ones who were leading the charge and writing letters to Reagan's EPA, you know, explaining that the law's you know, goals, which were ambitious goals, but they were, you know, I think the language from the memo was something like it's they're not a hollow promise. It's a goal that we take seriously. And so you know this story repeats itself in the early 1980s where Reagan tried to roll back these laws, and it was this kind of still strong coalition of moderate Republicans, many of whom hailed from New England and their allies across the aisle who blocked the uh, Reagan administration's initiatives. When they did that, the Reagan administration then went and tried to implement many of these reforms through administrative uh, reform through new uh, rules to implement the existing laws. But then those challenges ran up against, uh, ran into, uh, came up against headwinds in the courts. And I think one of the other lessons that emerges from the early 1980s is just how important groups like Natural Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Defense Fund, groups that had honed their expertise, had lawyers who were Fluent in these laws and able to go to the courts and follow these cases through the courts to ensure that the laws were were fully implemented. And because the language of many of these laws is very strong and um, often very clear, you know, they won a whole series of court cases that blocked the um, you know, the most uh, kind of aggressive uh, deregulatory initiatives that the Reagan administration advanced
2: can I Can I add something to that answer, Brian? Um, Jay's absolutely right that in some ways, the story of environmental politics since the beginning of the Reagan administration has been the successful ability of environmental organizations to keep these landmark environmental laws, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, on the books and keep them. You know they, they continue to be enforced with a kind of integrity. Right? And so that has been a success story. And I think one way to read the book is that, well, if your definition of environmental politics is maintaining the integrity of those laws, then the conservative revolt against those laws has been a kind of failure. But another way to look at it is that environmental organizations have had to spend an enormous amount of their energy and their time and their resources fighting a kind of rear guard action to preserve these laws that have been under attack. And that has made it harder for them to push forward on new environmental challenges. And the challenge of acid rain in the 1980s would be one example that, you know, the Sierra Club is trying to fend off James Watt and other groups are trying to work to maintain the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act from Ann Gorsuch's EPA. And nothing happened or not much of consequence happened uh, on, on acid rain in the 1980s. And the obvious problem now is climate change. That as environmental organizations are just trying to preserve the laws that are already on the books and get us back to baseline, that takes away from their ability to move us forward on something like climate change
0: yeah and that's what you turn to in the in the book's final chapter, the history of climate politics and and I think it's really interesting the way that you stress that it's it's insufficient to explain the GOP's opposition to action on climate change or the rise of climate denial as as, serial, as simply the you know, them doing the bidding of ExxonMobil and and this corporate donor class rather you you see it as you know part of a, a conservatives broader retreat from international cooperation on lots of issues and and also a reflection of what you say are really deeply held beliefs in American exceptionalism of different kind of different flavors. Um, could you unpack that for us? Jay, you
2: want to take this one? American exceptionalism is kind of your thing here.
1: Sure, I
0: can. <laughs>
1: Jay's a well, no, big it's American just, it, exceptionalist, everyone. You know, <laughs> Let me start on it, um, and then you can add in. You know, I, I do think right. That the usual story is that Republicans... Um, have been bought off by the fossil fuel industry, right? And there's a lot of evidence that there are strong ties between fossil fuel interests and the Republican Party and those ties have grown much stronger over the last um, 30, 40 years, although they go um, back in time uh, into earlier in the 20th century, but that they have played an important role in shaping the Republican Party's approach um, to energy policy. Drew pointing to, to Watts' efforts to throw open the offshore lands for oil leasing is an example of this, but then of course, more recently with climate change. And you know, so that's a strategy in terms of climate change that goes back to the you know, creation of the George C. Marshall Institute, which was a key um, think tank on the right, you know, challenging the science around lots of issues, including climate change, in the late 1980s and into the 1990s um, with the support of Exxon and other groups and then continuing today with um, you know, groups like Coke Industries and other um, think tanks like the Chicago-based Heartland Institute. It, what clued me in to the fact that kind of that story just about kind of special interest, fossil fuel industries and in the Republican Party, that that wasn't sufficient was when I was researching this book and it's interesting doing research (laughs) in the 21st century, right? You can stumble onto things like, you know, a YouTube video that somebody shot, right? With their, I don't know, cell phone or something, but it was in 2010, it was during the Tea Party, and it was a video of a rally that took place on somebody's farm in um, near Rapid City, South Dakota. And often when we think about the Tea Party, we think about the debates over Obama's healthcare law, but for... You know, some activists, you know, equally important, was the prospect at that time that we could have a comprehensive climate change bill. So if you remember back in 2009, the Democratic House passed the Waxman-Market Cap-and-Trade Bill, the American Clean Energy and Security Act, and it was an economy-wide cap on greenhouse gas emissions. It was really, you know, it would have been the you kind know, of first step at a national level to address climate change. And, you know, in retrospect, it seemed impossible that that was going to pass. But at the time, it seemed like it might be possible, right? During the election, right? You know, Senator McCain had voiced his commitment to moving this kind of legislation forward. Um, as a Republican candidate, you know, as a Republican senator from Arizona, he had co-sponsored this kind of legislation in the previous years. Obama had voiced his commitment to taking... Action as well. So it seemed like there was a bipartisan possibility at the time for some kind of market-based strategy. And I think the other thing that is worth mentioning here is that this was a market-based approach to environmental policy, which was exactly what the Republicans had kind of made their own in the early 1990s under George H.W. Bush's administration when they finally did take action on acid rain. So, you know, so one might expect the Republicans to support this kind of market-based approach to the American Clean Energy and Security Act, but that's not what happened. And so, back to South Dakota, that rally in South Dakota was part of a hot air tour that Americans for Prosperity, right, a conservative think tank organizing group out of Washington D.C., had put together, and you know there were. Several hundred people at this rally, and the hot air tour featured a, a red balloon that they took around the country in the summer of 2009 and 2010. And they would float it up over farm fields, and it had a huge and huge letters kind of blazoned on the side. It said "Cap and Trade means lost jobs, higher taxes, and less freedom." And for the activists, you know, who saw this, I mean, what they were doing was explaining, you know, for these, you know, farmers and truck drivers and workers, like what does cap and trade mean? And, you know, to explain that, you know, they were organizing a grassroots campaign with talking points that, you know, focused on if this law passes, if we address climate change, gasoline's going to cost you six to seven dollars. You know, your utility bills are going to more than double. We're going to have to ration energy. But it wasn't just about the numbers. mean these conservatives really, you know, focus their campaign as an assault on core American values. So at this rally, you know, they talked about, it, this was gonna be a loss of our freedoms. And kind of the key um, point that they made is that if this law was passed, you wouldn't be able to do one of kind of your exercise one of your most fundamental rights, which was to you know, enjoy your property, do with your property as you wish. They said, in this law, if it passes, you will not be able to sell your ranch or your home Unless you pass a federal government energy audit, the problem was is that wasn't in the bill at all. You know, in the same way that you know there was these organ, you know, kind of outcries over death panels, there was no requirement of a federal government energy audit for all existing properties in this uh, climate bill. But you know, I think that's the way in which you know, it's easy to see it as being about you know the fossil fuel industry and the republican party but that means ignoring just how much legwork was going into organizing at the grassroots on the right during you know, the tea party era you know not just on healthcare, but on these other issues as well so i think you know that's one part of this another part of it because they make this kind of engagement of the grassroots is so important. The other part is Christian evangelicals, and there's a really long and complicated history of how evangelicals have been committed to and opposed environmental reform, and it's different evangelicals who are lining up on either side. But since the early 2000s, there's been a a wing of conservatives that's organized around dominion theology, the supposition that Christians were put on earth with dominion over its resources. And from this perse- perspective, fossil fuels are here to lift humanity up to bring people out of poverty. And you know, when they look and they you know examine our climate system, they see it as a divine creation of God, and not something that we could possibly perturb by taking advantage of those fossil fuels or burning um, greenhouse gases but starting in the you know 2006 2007 you know there's a lot of organizing among Christian evangelicals to frame the growing concerns around climate change as the work of secular environmentalists who um you know who were unchristian, because they would countenance that humans could somehow upset the fundamental workings of, uh, of the planet, that that was a real affront to God's wisdom and design. And you know, as rational as the arguments of these climate scientists and their supporters might seem, you know, they warned their followers not to give in to the temptation to, to, believe, to believe the environmentalists and to you know, rally in opposition to the kinds of policies that they were advancing. So you know, there's just a lot of work going on um amongst conservatives that you know went down and really engaged these grassroots engaged the citizens um to take one more step back you, you know, part of your question was about american exceptionalism and you know there was a big shift from the early 1980s or or the 1980s or the early 1990s where drew Earle mentioned earlier you know ronald reagan was It was his administration that led the United States to sign on to the Montreal Protocol and take action on the stratospheric ozone hole in 1987. And that becomes kind of one of the core international environmental successes and is seen as a template for action on climate change. And it was a moment when it seemed that kind of the global interest in addressing this environmental issue was something that the United States had to play a role in, and you know, similarly at the start of the 90s, it was George H.W. Bush's administration that signed the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, right? The foundation for all of the climate policy that has come since, and so you know, the U.S. still was seen as a leader on international environmental policy, um, you know, through through the 1990s, but. In terms of American exceptionalism, I think there are two dimensions to this. I think one is that by the time you get to the mid-1990s, when actual reductions, caps on greenhouse gas emissions are on the table, conservative Republicans argue that if we were to do that, if we were to limit the United States' ability to burn fossil fuels and put a limit on our greenhouse gas emissions, we would be giving the economic advantage to other countries. Um, developing countries like China and India. So in 1997, with conservative Republicans um, spearheading the charge, the bird hagel resolution um, was passed, and it made this argument very clearly with a lot of support from Democrats as well, that if we were going to take action on climate change, it was not just going to be countries like the United States, but it needed to be countries include both developed and developing countries. But that argument has kind of fallen apart recently, right? Because with the Paris Climate Accord, those developing countries did come to the table. And that's what enabled the Paris Climate Accord to to be enacted or approved. And I think more recently, what you see in terms of American exceptionalism is that we're doing our part. Even if the United States, you know, conservatives are making the argument, if we're not. signing on to something like the Paris Climate Accord, or continuing with it, what we are do is doing is as as a nation that's truly exceptional in its ability to innovate and harness the uh, free market economy. We're reducing our greenhouse gas emissions without an international commitment, without comprehensive policy. So if you go back and you listen to what Scott Pruitt had to say after President Trump pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accord, what he had to say was that thanks to our free market economy and our innovation and our embrace of of natural gas fracking, we've actually seen our emissions come down in ways that we expected policy to force us to do. We've accomplished that through kind of our exceptional economy and um, technological innovations. That was one of Pruitt's big talking points after the US pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord in 2017. That's kind of a long answer to your question.
0: No, it's great. And, and you conclude the book right at that moment. You know, you put your readers in the conclusion in the White House uh, Rose Garden in June of last year on that day when President Trump announced that the nation would withdraw from Paris. And and you see it as a moment that really marks how drastically environmental politics have changed since the first Earth Day. And and I think I, I like the way you borrow a thought experiment um, from the political scientist Roger Pelkey. And you argue that we've gone from what he calls tornado politics to abortion politics when it comes to the environment. What does that mean?
2: this is drew let me let me take that one. Um, I think what he meant or the way we have appropriated his thought experiment what he what he laid out was a scenario where you had, say, a a school board meeting in some town, and someone rushes in in the middle of the meeting and says, I've just heard there's a tornado coming. And he asks, what would people do in that circumstance? This is is a relatively old article. So he said they would turn on the radio. I mean, nowadays they'd they'd go on their cell phones. They would turn on the radio and they would hear what the experts told them to do. They would listen to the meteorologists. And if they said everybody needs to take cover, they would immediately go and take cover. That a, A tornado, that kind of exigent situation is one in which People turn to scientific authority, and they they do what those scientists tell them need to be done. And essentially, environmental politics in the late nineteen sixties and the early nineteen seventies was tornado politics. That the the condition of the air, the condition of the water, uh, the, the the way in which species were threatened with extinction struck a lot of Americans as and an exigent situation, much like a tornado on the horizon. That's why 20 million Americans showed up for that first Earth Day in 1970. And 20 million potential voters showing up for an event like that will get the attention of a lot of people. That's why Republicans such as Richard Nixon, who weren't necessarily uh, on board with a lot of the goals of environmentalists, nonetheless signed on to their program in a really, in a really strong way. Abortion politics, though, is different. So Pelkey says, if someone rushed into that school board meeting and said, hey, we need to come up with a policy on abortion right away, you're not going to have immediate action, right? That's a situation in which people's values are going to enter into the situation. You may turn to uh, expert authority about it, but the thing about a situation like abortion, or you could say, Uh, the death penalty, or you could actually put a lot of questions about health care into that uh, category as well. Experts have a voice in this, but people's values also have a voice in this. And so one of the things that we suggest in the book is that over the last couple of decades, Republicans have successfully transformed environmental politics from tornado politics, in which people turn to scientists for authority and take their cues about what needs to be done from those scientists. And they've turned that into abortion politics in which people's values matter as much or more than what the scientists say. And so as Jay was just saying, uh, and he was answering your, your, your previous question, beliefs in American exceptionalism, that American technological ingenuity can find a solution to environmental problems, In many ways, that's a kind of faith-based belief that innovation will find some solution. We don't know yet how they'll do this, but we just have this faith that it will happen. I think Republicans have successfully turned environmental politics toward that. And they did that intentionally because conservatives who opposed environmental regulations were not being very successful playing the game of tornado politics. When they had to defer to scientific authorities, they they ended up not getting what they wanted. So they've, they've changed the terms of the debate successfully. And, and I'll just add, you know, in a way that resonates with the current political situation, that kind of abortion politics lends itself really well to the politics of outrage, uh, where people can get incredibly exercised about a particular issue. And uh, not only do they not defer to scientific authority, they just kind of They'll sort of shut down and not listen to it at all because uh, everybody's views on certain issues, where they've tapped into core values, are just ratcheted up to such a level that they don't listen to each other anymore. Yeah, I,
0: I imagine that a lot of readers, well, there will be many readers out there, will pick up this book um, in search of kind of a path back to a bipartisan golden age of environmental politics, um, and. And, uh, and you and we, and, but I would say that in the bipartisan achievements you describe that, that there's often, as you mentioned earlier, there's often a a moderate or even a liberal Republican kind of there in the center of it and and so you you often get Senator Chafee from Rhode Island is often in the middle in the middle of these things or or uh, the co-chair of the first Earth Day was Pete McCluskey from you know, the R- liberal Republican from California, and after last Tuesday there are very few Republican congress people left from California um and so I wonder has there ever been or is there or or could there be such a thing as a as a good faith conservative environmentalist is there room in the in the movement for that
1: There is a lot of concern for the environment among republicans, and you know I think evidence of this and I get, you know there's a lot of evidence for this, but one piece of evidence is that when trumps administration um kind of put out its first budget right one of the Proposals in terms of the environment was slashing the budget for the Environmental Protection Agency. I think they proposed reducing the EPA's budget by 30 or 31 percent. And what was interesting is that when this budget went to the Republican Congress, um, you know, by no means did it roll right through the Republican Congress. Instead, you know, during the hearings, it was the Republicans, along with the Democrats, who were bringing up questions about what the implications of this kind of budget cut at this scale would be. So you, you know, had an Ohio Republican who was defending Great Lakes restoration programs than an Idaho Republican who was you know, raising concerns about the impact on pesticide programs and you know, somebody from Republican who was you know, worried about how this would impact communities that were fighting smog. And so you can kind of go down the list and Republicans were the ones who were you know, raising concerns that when you, when you get away from climate change, right? And you know, so much of the rhetoric during the campaign was about climate and energy. When you actually look at these core issues of water pollution and air pollution and toxic waste sites and safe drinking water, you know, Republicans, Democrats, all care about these issues. And so ultimately when Congress passed a budget, it didn't follow the Trump administration's at all in 2017. In fact, it kept basic EPA funding at the same level. Now, you know, that isn't to say that, you know, it's clear the Trump administration has found many ways to undermine the work of the EPA over the past 2 years, but it hasn't done so in ways that have demonstrated that it has the entire Republican Party or um, you know, their uh, the Congress behind it. And I think you know one other piece of evidence for this is that this is kind of the golden opportunity for Republicans, right? They've got or you know, they had uh, the White House and they had Congress um, during the last uh, congressional session. They could have tried to move on large scale policy reforms that they've been kind of chomping at the bit to do, right, to reform the Fundamental environmental laws: the Endangered Species Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Air Act, and very little reform um, or rollbacks, you know, went through Congress. It wasn't like the start of the Reagan administration, where Reagan tried to move all of this big legislation. Trump did. Trump administration did not do that, and so they confined themselves largely to working through, you know, these administrative pathways. So I think, you know, there's. You know, it suggests to me that there is at some point there's a backstop of support for the environment and concern amongst Republicans that, um, you know, has been important uh, um you know, curbing just uh, any kind of strong push in Congress to kind of roll back these key laws. Um, you know, the other, you mentioned the midterm elections and they're. Are some Republicans who've supported been concerned about climate change, and there's a Climate Solutions Caucus that's emerged over the last several years in Congress, and they've adopted a kind of a two by two strategy. If a member of you know, a Democrat joins the caucus, they have to bring a Republican with them, and vice versa. And you know, public polling shows that there's a lot of concern amongst the American public about climate change, and there's concern within the um, you know people who vote Republican as well and so this climate solutions caucus had some um, 40 odd members or so but after the midterm elections half of those uh, republican members lost their seats in the election and i think you know that's evidence right that our political system you know really rewards those who move towards the right um not towards not towards the middle and there are a lot of large forces in terms of how politics uh, work, how the Republican Party has changed over the last three decades. You know, structural changes that kind of led to this Republican reversal, and to kind of get back to a moment where we're going to have kind of a, you know, room for a good faith confer- you know, conservative environmentalism. I think you know, we're going to need a lot of you know, structural changes in terms of ki- campaign finance and. Gerrymandering to you know make room for that kind of uh, you know, that kind of change politics.
2: Can can I add to that? I think there's a. I was just to say I, I think there's a what Jay's getting at is there's a real disconnect between what elected officials, particularly on on the Republican side, are saying about an issue like climate change, and what the majority of voters, Republican and Democrat, uh, want to see happen. My sense is is that I think that the majority of voters in in both parties and and independents as well, what they would like is a bipartisan consensus on environmental policy like the one that existed in the early 1970s. They would like to see environmental issues put in the same category as say national defense where everybody gets together and says, look, this is something we need to do for the good of everybody. And yet the, the tribal politics of outrage are, it, it, they've affected people in such a way that people end up voting for for uh, representatives who's on their you know someone who's on the Republican team even if that person is advocating something in terms of environmental policy that that they don't agree with
0: I want to ask you both about teaching this material. Um, political parties are perhaps something that most people think they understand better than they do, and so teaching their history can be tricky. I, I think about you know, students assuming that they're more homogenous than they are, or this idea in the U.S. history about you know, the parties switched at one point, this kind of fuzzy notion of that. Um, so what are the, some of the ways that you've helped your students understand the composition of parties, how they work, and how they've changed over time?
2: Well, I'll say actually, I think in a way, teaching political history... There's an advantage to teaching political history because one of the struggles that, that we all have in, in teaching students you know, about the past is to ask them to think about contingency, to ask them to think about context, to, to ask them to put themselves in the minds of someone at a particular point in time. And it's often unbearably tempting for these students to, since they know how the story turned out, to kind of pull it forward uh, to the way things are now. But the thing about political history, particularly if you're talking about something like an election, it it actually encourages students to think about that particular contest. Say, well, here was this candidate and he had these supporters and he was, you know, wanted to put this program into effect. But in order to win election, here here were the choices that he had to make. And so in a way, political history and and Republican reversal is uh, largely a political history. It actually... It can be it's the sort of thing that I've found students react to quite well because they they're able to put themselves into the past in a way that's much more difficult with uh, a lot of other uh, historical methodologies. Um, and one of the things we've had to, we've tried to do to sort of make teaching of this book uh, more accessible is uh, we created a, a website to go along with it. Um, and it was it was Jay who took the lead on that, so maybe he should say more about that
1: yeah well, I think the well, the goal of the website was that you know we had waded through all of these primary documents and you know interpreted them and analyzed them and assembled this narrative. but we wanted to give students who were working through our book the chance to look at these documents themselves, so the website's kind of a curation of primary documents that are um all of which we drew upon in the book so if students want to read the Powell memo they can go and read. The Powell memo, or if they want to look at the um, way in which uh, the Edison Electric Institute kind of described the issue of acid rain in the early 1980s, they can go and look look at that. It's um, there if they want to see the transcript from the uh, rally out in South Dakota, you know, they can find that on the website, and so it's you know giving students the chance to work through those materials for themselves and uh, compare their analysis, their understanding with ours, you know, that was a goal of the website, to put these um, materials at their fingertips. So, so the website um, you know, includes these primary materials. It also includes a timeline because you know, one of the the way this book is structured is it has three core case studies, one around clean air and clean water, one around public lands and resource development, and then one around climate change. And, and energy, and there's, a, there's also on this website, there's a timeline that then stitches these different narratives and kind of brings them into one, uh, one timeline, which is a different way of looking at the story that complements the book. But our hope is that by having these materials readily available, and it's easy to find if you Google the Republican Reversal on the web, that this teaching resource will really uh, complement the book and make it easier to teach for those who want to use it in the classroom
0: it's pretty unusual for uh, two historians to co author a book and and when they do it's it 's quite rare that they produce a book that's has as the cohesive narrative that this one does. Could you tell us a little bit about the origins of the project and your experience uh, collaborating Jay,
1: you want to start with that? I guess I could start on this is jay I'll, sure this is jay i 'll start on the origins of the project the the origins of the project came on election night, in two thousand sixteen I um, had been working on a different project and immediately um, after the aftermath of the uh, election realized that no one was real interested in that project at the moment. And, you know, there were so many concerns about what was going to happen, right, with the Trump administration rolling into Washington, Republicans gaining power in Washington to environmental laws. And there'd been so much, you know, just uh, alarming rhetoric on the campaign trail about the environment. And, you know, I just I kind of realized, you know, that George w. Bush, And Ronald Reagan had said really crazy things about environmental issues as well. And so, you know, there were, there was kind of precedent for this kind of of alarming rhetoric. And, you know, while, and and that they had, uh, you know, had also tried to undo our environmental protections and had a lot of trouble um, and resistance in doing so. And it seemed, you know, so the motivation, kind of the origin story for the book was that it just, it would be very useful to have. A narrative both of how Republicans had tried to roll back the environmental state and how that had become so difficult because of um, the mobilization among environmentalists and moderate Republicans and and, uh, Democrats at this particular moment when it seemed like this might happen um, again. And so that was kind of the origin of the book. But the the collaboration part of the book um, was nice and true, uh, kind of this is what I'm thinking about. I think this would be a useful book to write, and Drew said, "You yeah, know, I think I think you're right that that could be a useful contribution. Um, you know, what would you think about working on this together?" And-
2: Which was a completely impulsive thing on my part to say. Uh, you know, I had many of the same reactions that, that Jay had, and he sent me a kind of uh, a sort of proposal for the book. He wanted me to look at and give him, you know, some thoughts on it. I said, "I said this is great, but." It, it will take you a really long time if you try to do this yourself. Do you want some help? And I didn't really think about that offer before it came out of my mouth. Uh, but, but there it was. And, and I'm glad that we did that because uh, it actually turned out to be uh, uh, both a lot of fun and, a, and, and I just learned a lot in terms of when, when writing this.
1: There was a certain motivation in knowing that if you got up at, you know, five o'clock in the morning as I was doing many mornings to work on this book, you know, every time I wrote a word. Somebody else, Drew was also writing a word, so I'd really written two words. And just you know, knowing that there was an immediate audience that you know, somebody was going to be there to read kind of what you had produced that that day or that week, yeah, you know, that was really good motivation just in terms of keeping the project together, kind of on that level. But then, I think our approach, you know, our approaches as, as historians, were were complementary in ways that worked really well for this project.
0: Well, before I let you go, I, I know you're both working now. Now that you've done this duet, uh, now you're both working on individual, you know, monographs that uh, that are both really exciting. And I wondered if you could just tease them quickly for our listeners.
2: No, no he's, Jay's absolutely right about that. That you know, you have one has one these these moments of despair when you're writing a book, and you just think about I'm only this far along. But then I just always reminded myself I'm twice as far as along as I think I am. Uh, and we had this may have been a psychological trick but we imagined a shorter book than the one that we eventually produced and that allowed us to feel that we were a lot closer to the goal than we really were but in in terms of in terms of uh, how we made this work we had a flurry of emails back and forth and we had a weekly scheduled phone conversation which could go for an hour or more in which we talked about what we'd written and what we were gonna write next and how we thought this was going and what we wanted to emphasize and what was working and what wasn't working. And so it was about, it was about five or six months of uh, sort of pretty close collaboration in order to get it out. And we had to put aside the other things we were working on in order to get it done.
1: Yeah, so this is Jay, the, the project that I put up on the, on the, on the shelf. Um, after the election, um, but have taken back down since and I'm excited to complete is I've been working on an environmental history of batteries. And the idea there was just realizing that we were moving into this world where batteries seem to be in everything from new automobiles, electric cars, to our laptops, to our cell phones. I was spending a lot of time thinking about charging things and realizing that batteries have played this uh, enabling role in you know, it's not just a story of 21st century sustainability, but in you know, the major systems of communication and transport and power um, since the start of the 20th century. And so what, you know, what can we look, learn by looking at this longer history of batteries from the perspective of environmental history? as we move into this 21st century where batteries are becoming more and more important so the specific focus of my book is the lead acid battery which was the real workhorse of the 20th century and there's some really valuable lessons from um, how that technology um, just the cost the management regulation of that technology um, as we uh, think about batteries today
2: Uh, The project that I put aside and now that I'm getting back to is because I am a 19th and 20th century historian, I'm working on a cultural and environmental history of the American West in the first half of the 19th century. It's a number of It's a number of things that I've come across in the course of researching other books, um, an effort to vaccinate Native Americans against smallpox, an effort to introduce camels into the Southwest in the 1850s, that struck me these kinds of, they were all kinds of weird experiments in the West that did not seem to fit the Manifest Destiny narrative. And I originally thought of them as just exceptions to the rule. And the more I looked at this and the more kinds of things I came up with, I realized that there are so many exceptions to the rule that there's not much left of the rule itself. So uh, what I'm writing is a kind of way of reconceiving the first part of the 19th century in the American West that sets aside manifest destiny and tries to think about it in a more complex and contingent way.
0: Thanks so much. Well, that's uh, those are exciting projects to look forward to in, in the time ahead. And that's all the time we have today on New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton, and I've been speaking with James Morton Turner and Andrew Eisenberg about their new collaborative work, The Republican Reversal, Conservatives and the Environment from Nixon to Trump, brand new out from Harvard University Press. They said it was longer than they expected it to be, but it's still plenty short to assign to get undergrads to read or to get friends and family to to pull out of their stocking in, in the month ahead. Um, and, uh, and again, the teaching website that goes along with the book is at www.theRepublicanReversal, separated by dashes.com. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Brian.
1: Thank you, Brian.